the man I might have been. This morning, I want to bring a message to our youth, young and old, to realize that Bible characters are just as real as the people you meet on the street. And so this morning, I'm going to do my very, very best in this worship service to portray a Bible character in such a manner that he will become alive in your thinking. And that character is Judas Iscariot. Now, why did some of you shudder? Why haven't you named some of your sons after my name? Some of you are called Peter, and some of you are called John, and others Andrew. What's wrong with my name anyway? I had a very good name. My name means the praise of God, as you study the Hebrew. You see, when I was born, my parents were extremely happy. They were filled with gratitude and joy. And so they named me the praise of God. Don't you remember that one of Jacob's 12 sons was called Judas? And don't you remember that one of Christ's brothers was named Judas? He's the one you know that wrote the book of Jude. And then there was that famous Jude, uh, Jewish military leader called Judas Maccabees. Some of you studied about him in history. There was a time in brief history when he brought national independence to my people. Judas Maccabees was a Jew. He was to the Jewish nation just as George Washington was to America. And my parents named me after him, and so I'm proud of it. Judas Iscariot. This means that I was born in a village of Kerith, the place where Amos was born, about 50 miles from Jerusalem. Of course, all the other disciples came from Galilee. So you see, I made a very good start in life. I was reared in a religious home. I was taught to believe in God. I loved my country. I loved my people. And as I matured into manhood, I decided that I would be the one who would free our people from the Roman yoke. So naturally, one day, when I discovered Jesus, I was attracted to him. Here was a man that I felt that could materialize my dreams. Of course, Jesus never called me to be one of his disciples. I just sort of attached myself to his group of men. I was never one of the twelve in his respect, but uh, I found it very simple to join the group when he ordained the eleven disciples. It was a very simple matter. Because, you see, I had made a good impression upon the disciples. They held me in high regard. They felt that 
If I joined them, I would give them prestige. They considered me of an excellent counselor. I did have a commanding appearance. I was good in discernment. In fact, I had executive ability. My approach was a clinch. I simply came to the master on that day and said, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And was I shocked when he replied, and you read it in Matthew, the eighth chapter, verse 20. He said to me, foxes have holes and the birds of the air, they have nests. But the son of man, he hath not where to lay his head. If only then I had known his ability to read the heart, I would have realized that he could see right through my superficial sincerity. Gradually, the disciples considered me better than they themselves. I was one whom they needed. You see, there was Peter. He was so impetuous. He was always prone to act without any consideration. And there was John. He was a very poor financier. And Matthew? Well, he was over particular in honesty. He was so absorbed when Jesus was teaching that he never could be trusted to make a sharp business deal. But you see, with my abilities, well, I could bring honor to their group. Looking back, and you must remember that I lived with Christ for about two years. I heard his sermons. I witnessed his miracles. Why, I even preached his gospel. And I was so moved when I heard his prayers. I actually started on the road to heaven. Do you realize that if I had died just before that last week, when Christ was crucified, that the entire Christian people of this world would have immortalized me as one of the twelve throughout the ages? You see, I was the man that might have been. Let me illustrate. There is a certain butterfly, one of God's most glorious winged creatures, that is hidden in a crawling caterpillar. But let me tell you, all caterpillars do not become butterflies. From the naturalist, we learn of a very tragic event. Sometimes a fly thrusts an egg into a living caterpillar. And when that egg hatches, it feeds upon the butterfly that is to be. The caterpillar feels no pain. He is unknowingly being eaten alive. He continues as a caterpillar, but he will never become a butterfly. His wings never appear, for the grub that is now within him destroys his ability to advance. The glorious winged creature which might have been will never become a butterfly. Shall I tell you this morning 
what the grub was that Satan implanted within me that kept me from being the man that I might have been? I'll tell you simply, it was worldly ambition. I've already told you of my parents, how they gave me a very illustrious name. I was associated with patriotism, with power, and with freedom. So, when I discovered Jesus, I found him to be fearless. He had all the qualities of a world leader. Why? He could answer my dreams. I was ready to follow him, ready to fight by his side. I was ready to climb to the very top with him. Can you imagine? Jesus to be the king of Israel, and I? Why, I would be the chief treasurer of all Palestine, which would mean money, wealth, honor, and power. I became overjoyed with such thoughts that this suddenly one day became a reality when Jesus secretly told his disciples that he was the Messiah. But this meant one thing to Jesus, and it meant another thing to me. To Jesus, it meant suffering. To me, it meant a dominion. To Jesus, it meant a cross. To me, it meant a crown. Eventually, all of the other disciples came around to Christ's viewpoint, but not I. If his kingdom was not to include glory and power and honor and riches, then his cause was not for me. But I kept hoping all the time. Everything seemed to go wrong. You remember John the Baptist? I had it all worked out. I had a plan whereby Christ would perform a mighty miracle and release him from the prison. But alas, one day, John was beheaded. I wanted an aggressive warfare. Instead, I watched daily the increasing enmity of the Jewish leaders. I saw their challenge go unheeded. They demanded a sign of Christ that he was from heaven. Why, why did Jesus continually dwell on discouraging factors? He talked about trials. He talked about persecutions. The truth is, I never did decide that Jesus was the Son of God. Of course, I kept questioning. But several things brought this problem to a head. One day, he was out there feeding the 5,000. I was amazed. Why, here was a man that if he took his soldiers into battle, he could heal them and they could continue fighting. There was no problem for food. He could feed everybody. I got the idea to make him king right then and there. I was the disciple who got a whole large number of those people together and said, come, let's make him king. And would you believe it? Jesus suddenly disappeared right in front of us. I could hardly believe my eyes. Things were always coming that way. But the turning point 
was when I heard Christ, his discourse in the temple one Sabbath afternoon. It's recorded in John 6, 53. I heard it myself. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Suddenly, it dawned on me. I realized for the first time in my life that Christ was offering spiritual food. He was not interested in a temporal treasure. Being foresighted as I was, I could see no honor in any position with him. From that moment, I decided not to follow him too closely so that I could withdraw any time I chose. But still, I continually hoped that he would become a great leader like David the king. And such hopes really finally brightened. I remember that day, how could I forget it? When the children gathered there and they cried, Hosanna unto the king. It was the day of the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And I thought, now is the time as I saw the palm branches being waved in the air. And then I remember how Jesus cleansed the temple single-handedly. Here was the kind of a Messiah I wanted. Things were really beginning to happen. Why didn't he seize the opportunity and proclaim himself the king? But the straw that broke the camel's back was what happened in Simon the leper's home. Following the meal, Jesus was sitting at the table. Well, let me read it to you from Mark 14, verse 3. And being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. Now immediately I recalled the significance of Old Testament times when kings were anointed. Here was a woman that evidently felt just like I did. She wanted him to be the king. She was enthusiastic and with a grand and lavish gesture toward the kingdom she poured it on his head. But Jesus was very quick to turn the meaning. You remember what he said in Mark 14, 8? She hath done this what she could. She came aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Never was I so amazed. She intended to point him to a crown, I was sure, not to a coffin. But why do I tell you more? Jesus was always rejecting earthly glory. I was fed up. The game was over as far as I was concerned. Why waste my ambition on Christ? His cause was headed for bankruptcy. What could I salvage out of the wreck? I still smart at his remark. You see, I had whispered to the disciple next to me, I was complaining about this being a waste 
I said, Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pieces of silver and given to the poor? I could use a few more shekels in the bag. But Jesus read my thoughts. He opened me up to the hypocrisy of the head. Yet, I will never forget the look in Jesus' eye. His eyes were moist. They were full of love, full of pleading and full of long-suffering as he talked to me. I shall never forget it. Yet, I would have none of it. I decided to go straight to the priests. I determined to get some revenge. I would force his hand. I would bargain to sell my Lord for a measly 30 pieces of silver. Oh, revenge is so sweet. Is there one here that believes that? I had mine. That's why I chose a kiss as a sign to his enemies. But what a delusion. Sweet? It tasted like bitter gall. When he turned to me and said, Friend, friend, wherefore art thou come? Betrayest thou the Son of God with a kiss? Listen to me. Is there anyone here this morning that's nursing a heart that has feelings in it of spite and resentment and revenge? Think again. Consider it fully. It's the road that leads you to hell. Like the poet who wrote, Oh, laddie, my laddie, with great flashing eye, with boyish cheek crimson and pulse beating high, you say you'll get even no matter how long it takes you to pay for a slight or a wrong. Tell me, oh laddie, just whisper it low. The secret I long have been wanting to know when after you hurry and flurry and fret at last you get even. Just what did you get? Is it something that gives you a glad thrill of joy? That makes you a better, a manlier boy? Is it something that conscience may whisper, Well done, and bring you sweet peace at the set of the sun? Oh, laddie. The whole world is waiting to know the secret that puzzled the wise long ago. If after you worry and flurry and fret, at last you get even, just what did you get? You see, vengeance is not the beginning of sin. Vengeance is the final fruit of sin. The beginning with me was worldly ambition. Such aims were never surrendered to the purpose of Jesus. You remember that Apostle John? He too had worldly ambition. He requested one day, believe it or not, a throne to sit right beside Christ. 
But eventually, he also yielded. Christ became his master. But I, I never surrendered. Here was the ultimate difference between John and myself. Perhaps you have heard the story of a famous artist who painted the scene of the Last Supper. He selected his models with great care. He portrayed the disciple John with a young man who had a handsome look with a high purpose. He painted him as a man with a spiritual expression across his entire countenance. It was thus that the artist painted each of the disciples, leaving Judas to the last. By now, it had taken him many years. And so he went now to the lowest quarter of the city where criminals were bred. He was searching for a man that would portray Judas. One day, he chanced to meet such a man. His face was very unsympathetic. He had a sordid expression. He had a hard, cruel look. Here was a man that qualified to portray the evil that the artist wished to show on the face of Judas. He proved to be a very cooperative model. But there was one problem. He continually was looking over at the finished picture of John. Day by day as he was painting his face, he was always looking at that picture of John. Finally, the artist asked, Do you like the face of John? Oh, yes, he replied. It was once mine. You see, five years ago, I sat as a model to portray John. Oh, the man that I might have been. I too could have been like John. We lived at the same time. We talked under the same Syrian sky. We experienced the same temptations. We both fellowshiped with Jesus. We each shared the same apostleship. John, I might have been like you if only I had surrendered my worldly hopes and aspirations. How well do I remember the challenge of Christ in Matthew 16, 24? One day he said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. John, I could have been like you if I had followed Jesus and surrendered my life. But if not like John, I might have been a Simon Peter. My sin like Peter was not unforgivable. Oh, but I hear some of you young people say, why, you sinned against the most wonderful person that ever lived. But should that make my case hopeless? No, just the opposite. You see, I sinned against a person who forgives as no man ever forgave. Didn't I watch Jesus forgive the adulterer, adulteress? 
There she was in a heap on those cobblestones, tears of repentance coming down her cheeks. And I heard Jesus say, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And you know, you remember, there was that thief on the cross. Can you see him when he turned his head in pain and said to that thief, Thou shalt be with me in paradise? And he forgave Peter also, for Peter denied that he ever knew the Lord. It's true. It's a fact. Jesus never refused forgiveness to anyone who ever sought it. Yes, he would have forgiven me too if I had repented. Wasn't he trying to tell me that in the garden when he looked at me with those loving eyes and said, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Why, he called me a friend when I was at my worst. He did not denounce me. You know, want to know something? He loved me. Why? Why did I not repent? Perhaps I should ask, why is it that some of you don't repent? You see, repentance requires humility, self-abasement, a change of heart, a willingness to turn around and resolutely face the opposite direction. Let me tell you something. It's the hardest thing an individual can ever do in his life. It's more than just feeling sorry for sin because you have a terrified conscience. It's more than open confession. It's believing that when you repent, you know he will forgive you. How can I describe the scene? There I stood in that garden that evening, believing that Christ would free himself. I saw his hands being bound securely. I was so amazed, I followed him into the trial and stood in one of the recesses of that hall. Every moment I expected him to reveal his divine power and free himself. Instead, I saw him submit to every abuse, I became filled with a terrible fear. Suddenly, I realized that I was a traitor. I could endure the torture no longer. Instantly, my voice rang out, sending terror to every heart. I have sinned in that I have betrayed innocent blood. But I was speaking to my companions. I was not speaking to the Savior. I was crying earthward, not heavenward. Great sweat drops covered my forehead. I took the bag and I threw the money down. I can still hear those 30 pieces of silver running around on the floor. I grabbed the robe of Caiaphas. I implored him to release Jesus, but he only shook me off. Spare him, I cried. Oh, that I had repented to Jesus and allowed God to fill my heart with godly grief. 
for betraying the spotless Son of God. Oh, that I had begged Jesus that moment for a new heart, for cleansing, for renewing. But I was too proud. Suddenly, I discovered it was all over. Screaming as I yelled and left the hall, it's too late, it's too late. Oh, that I had followed Jesus to Pilate's judgment hall and there pleaded for mercy, he would have forgiven me. Or why didn't I follow him to Pilate's judgment hall where he was mocked and abused and fell down at his feet and asked for forgiveness? He would have forgiven me. Even when he was on the cross, if only I had looked up and asked him to forgive me, he would have forgiven me because he loved me. If only, if only. But later that day, on the road to Calvary, as the mob passed a retired spot, they beheld an unforgettable sight. For there at the foot of a lifeless tree, I paid the price for my revenge with a cord that was broken and a mangled body with dogs devouring its remains. Fundamentally, there was little difference between Peter's sin and mine. You see, the difference was what we did about it afterwards. He took a road and found, as John had said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I, I took the other road, a road that led away from Christ, a road that led to a lifeless tree in the valley, to a rope and a leap in the dark. Thus the man Judas, which meant praising God, became Judas, a warning of God throughout all ages. And it's this warning I have come to talk with you about this morning. Listen, a good start to the kingdom is not enough. You remember Benedict Arnold? He once enjoyed a friendship with George Washington. They sat at the same table and ate together. But he became the most hated American, a traitor. Remember my life. A good start doesn't count unless it's tied to a good ending. I would warn you not to be carried away with worldly ambition. John tells us in the second chapter, verse 16 and 17, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God 
abideth forever. Yes, it is true, as Mark told us in chapter 8, 36, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And may I add, for 30 pieces of silver. Oh, I would warn you against the bitter emptiness of revenge. And when the winds of vengeful passion sweep down upon your soul, and believe me, the devil will do it someday, even when persecutions come, do what the disciples did when they were stricken out there in that boat that was about to go down. When the waves were sweeping over, they cried to the master of the ship, for he had power to still the angry sea of life with the words, Peace, be still. And I warn you once more against the folly of impenitence. You see, it was not my sins that ruined me. It was not, and it will not be your sins that will ruin you. But it is sinning and seeking not forgiveness. The sin that will carry my soul to hell was not treason. It was impenitence. The only sin that will take you to hell is a sin of failing to repent. That is the sin that is unpardonable. And so, this morning, don't hesitate as I did. Don't put aside that still, small voice that keeps pleading in your heart. Don't act as if you know more than God. Why don't you take a look at the road that the prodigal trod. You read about it in Luke 15, verse 18. He said, I will arise, I will go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. Let me tell you this morning, that road is never closed, day nor night. Oh, it's going to close one of these days soon when Jesus throws down that censer in heaven and there will be no more mercy. But this morning, that road is open. Don't leave this church this morning with one sin unconfessed in your heart. Remember. Look into the face of Jesus. Let him tell you how much he loves you and how much he longs to forgive. Loving Father, as we have talked of a man today who once looked into your face, we somehow see you looking into our face this morning. We see the love in your eyes we hear you say, how can I give thee up? We somehow feel the love pulsing in our heart. Oh God, help us to reach out and ask for forgiveness. 
Help us never to spend a night on this earth without having made everything right with thee. God forgive us. Help these young people in this church to live up to become men and women who will be true as duty in their duty as the needle is to the pole. Help them to stand for God amid the perils of this world. May every one of us here follow thee as we give our hearts to thee this morning anew. In Jesus' name, amen.